0: All right, we're here with Todd Davidson. Todd is a research associate at the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. We're going to talk a little bit today about storage, energy storage. Todd, thanks for sitting down. No problem, David. So uh, let me start with this question. Uh, Because wind and solar generators tend to generate power at the same time, and only at certain times, in a high penetration of renewables' future, we're going to have too much power at certain times and not enough power at other times, suggesting a role for energy storage. Can we begin by having you briefly describe both the daily need and the seasonal need for storage in that kind of clean energy future?
1: Sure. I'm, I'm happy to. So the first aspect is let's, let's talk about uh, daily storage needs. So in and let's use California as an example and so there is something that's called the, the duck curve which is a classic um, uh, display of what energy production is uh, in the state of California as a result of increasing levels of solar power that, uh, that are being used and basically deployed on the grid. And that um, solar, as you might expect, when the sun is up, we're producing electricity and we have a large excess of electricity gets produced in the middle of the afternoon. Um, And unfortunately, right now, a lot of it um, can end up in a scenario where you might need to curtail. And so on a daily basis, of course, um, in an effort to not waste production of electricity, there's, of course, this idea of, well, can we store that electricity and move it to a separate time of the day? And in that day, maybe it's just moving it to the afternoon when everybody gets home to to turn on their uh, air conditioning and, and consume that electricity. Now, there's a more challenging aspect, which is potentially like seasonal um, uh, storage. And seasonal storage might be... Um, even in California, you may have periods of low uh, electricity demand. So in um, May or even early June, you have sunny weather, but you don't have a lot of electricity consumption because the weather is still pretty temperate. So in a place like California, you could have large excess of, of, of electricity production in, in a shoulder, what we call shoulder months. You might see a similar thing even in, in a place like Texas, where in Texas it's actually windier in the winter months as opposed to the summer when and the problem with that is that in Texas we want to consume most of our electricity in the summer and so there's an idea of well can we capture this um, winter wind right and then shift it to uh, these higher peaks of, of the summer days and those that type of shift is actually much more challenging than a daily shift of, of electricity because that's to occur over longer periods of time which in, in, uh, involve basically larger engineering challenges um, but it's still an opportunity that if we are considering moving to a world that is really high uh, variable renewable electricity generation, then um, we may need to consider doing that. And so there's an open-ended question as to what the best, most effective way of doing that is.
0: Yeah. I, I look. We, I just happened with my class to look at the Cal ISO app yesterday yeah. and they curtailed solar a little bit yesterday. Yeah, exactly. But we're talking in late April of 2018. Right. Um, So many people think of batteries as one of the solutions to the short-term storage, the daily storage need, and presumably why California is providing all these incentives to install storage on the grid, um, have utilities do it. But can batteries serve
1: this longer-term storage need? So in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. You can charge a battery, and it will retain its charge for quite some time. Now, however, there is something that's called self-discharge, and and batteries, once you charge them, will begin discharging themselves. They basically are like a leaking container of water, if you want to think of it that way. You fill up a cup with water, and it's slowly leaking out over time, so it's almost better to just drink the water pretty quickly. (laughs) Now, um, when when you charge it up 100%, lithium-ion battery might discharge say 5% or so in the first um, day and then it might continue to discharge at a rate of maybe 2% or so over the course of a month. Now that depends on the battery chemistry, it depends on the design. There are some batteries that are even better than that. There are some batteries that are significantly worse than that. And so I, the reason I bring this up is that um, as we consider daily storage versus seasonal storage, these aspects might become important. and. There's another thing called cycle life, which is how often are we cycling these batteries. So if you're cycling them a lot, say, on a daily basis, then that might suit itself to one type of battery. Whereas if you're doing large seasonal storage, well, maybe even you're actually only cycling it a few times a year, maybe. Um, so that actually might suit itself to a different type of storage. So all of these things in terms of how we design our energy storage system, um, we're going to need to consider whether or not You know, is it the right tool from our tool shed to solve the specific problem that we're solving or trying to solve
0: So it's both a technical and an economic question what the right tool for the job is. Yeah, that's right. So um, at the Austin Electricity Conference this year, you gave a presentation about another form of long-term storage uh, that involved uh, renewable gases. Can you describe how that option might help us meet these seasonal storage needs in the future?
1: Sure, and maybe, and let me maybe set the stage a little bit, and we'll talk specifically sure. about about that. the the general thesis or question that we have on our hand right now, which is in part what you asked just a moment ago about, can batteries meet these needs? Um, is that there are moments in our uh, in our energy consumption around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world, where if we moved to a really high penetration levels of wind and solar that there really are times where it's, it's cloudy and it's not windy for potentially days if not weeks. Um, I mean you think about the Pacific Northwest um, it could be cloudy for months at times um, now they've got um, high functioning um, hydropower and potentially pumped hydropower so they've got some solutions that they have but so you can imagine even um, um, say the northern Midwest, of the United States could be cloudy and cold and um, and potentially not windy for really long periods of time. So if you shift to a high renewable world in that regard and you have a weather pattern that moves in for a really long duration, then um, you have to start thinking about, well, my daily storage and I have seasonal storage, but maybe there's something in between which is kind of this two or three week level of, of storage capacity. Um, and if you start adding up what current price projections are for lithium-ion batteries, um, you know, we're, we quickly get into sort of the tens of trillions of dollars to have lithium-ion batteries solve that problem. Um, and they would degrade and die basically every eight to ten years. So we'd have like a $10 trillion bill every eight years, which seems really unlikely that we would muster the, you know, funds to, to handle that bill. Um, so... I do want people and want listeners to realize that, like, lithium-ion batteries, despite the fact that they're amazing, they solve all these problems for our, for our phones and our computers and our cars, I'm not sure they're the right solution for large-scale grid storage. So then there's this question, okay, what are other, other solutions? And there's a lot of other solutions, which I'd be happy to touch upon if you want. Um, but one of those potential solutions is something that's called power to gas, which is taking um, excess renewable electricity, so wind or solar, Converting water into hydrogen using a process called electrolysis, and then using that hydrogen either directly or as a feedstock to then produce other fuels. Um, There are major drawbacks to this. For instance, it's less efficient than um, just using electricity itself. Energy efficient, less energy. It's less energy efficient. So if you just take electricity from solar power, put it directly in a battery, and drive your car. That is significantly more energy efficient than using that electricity to produce hydrogen to put it in the fuel cell to drive your car. Hands down, the battery is, and just doing electricity is more efficient than the hydrogen. What I think becomes more interesting is when you start talking about decarbonizing other sectors of the economy that are really hard to uh, decarbonize like industrial heat, residential um, applications. So it's, it's more complicated than even just electricity generation um, and transportation, there are other sectors of our economy that also need to be tar- carbonized, and that 's where um, it 's worth thinking about and these
0: gases might be appropriate. this approach to storage might be or even a better fit in those other sectors
1: it may be yeah so if you think about um, so we wrote some papers on using hydrogen and such for the transportation sector, so I think it 's still relevant there and we should still be thinking about it because say right. hey, like it might still be a good fit for like heavy duty trucking but Exactly what you just said, using it for an application like an industrial sector, I think, is maybe at least right now potentially more interesting or at least worth our consideration um, because um, steel manufacturing needs hydrogen. Um, chemical and refining applications, they need high quality heat. They don't need ele- an electrochemical battery that delivers electricity, does not solve this problem. We need high temperature industrial heat that currently comes from methane and to deliver that solution an a lithium ion battery is not going to get the job done. Um, Unquestionably it's not going to get the job done really and so um, if we have aspirations you know to go 100 percent renewable or even just high percentage renewable even if it's you know 80 or 90 percent then we have to be giving consideration as to how do we decarbonize these other sectors of the economy that would not be solved with lithium-ion batteries.
0: So I'm old enough to remember the first period of optimism about hydrogen, yep. um, and there, it seemed to run into a chicken-and-egg problem about sort of a delivery system. This is for yes. hydrogen vehicles mainly, I think. It was okay. People were talking about at the time. And um, you know, we don't have that delivery system the way we do for, me- for natural gas, right? Yep. So, in these industrial applications, would this be on site production of hydrogen, or would you need that same sort of delivery system?
1: So it's a great question and it's actually something that we're wrestling with right now one thing I want to make clear is that we we do not have all the answers for this right now and i do I do actually sort of retain a healthy skepticism about the application of hydrogen mm-hmm. because I do understand and know the history of it um, and I think that he- I think skepticism on this topic is very healthy but I do look at this as a potential application that from a technical standpoint could solve some of the decarbonization questions of the industrial sector and so how we distribute this fuel is a really important question. One opportunity is looking at how do you do you ship, um, if you have West Texas wind and you're supplying hydrogen to the Texas Triangle, so basically the Dallas to San Antonio to Houston and, and include Austin in that loop or that triangle. Um, and if you're moving hydrogen for that large consumption center in the eastern portion of Texas, then... Um, do you ship hydrogen or do you ship electrons? And the, and then you get into another um, uh, potential um, part of your, your sort of optimization question is do you have centralized or do you have distributed hydrogen production? Um, so are you producing hydrogen on site say at large gas stations at the equivalent of a large gas station or the equivalent of an industrial facility or are you producing it at an even larger site that's centralized hydrogen production and then distributing it from there? As you've already highlighted, there are real questions or problems with then distributing hydrogen because we don't already have that uh, infrastructure in place, um, or at least that dedicated infrastructure in place. And the reason I emphasize dedicated is because we can inject hydrogen into our existing natural gas infrastructure. Um, So we can put it in existing pipelines. Now, how much we can put in there is another open-ended question. Um, Some will say up to, say, 20%. Some that I have heard uh, a gas utility say, well, they're really actually more comfortable at probably 5%. So we can move hydrogen in existing infrastructure, but how much we can move in there is still sort of to be determined, and it certainly would not fully decarbonize that infrastructure.
0: Because you'd be using the
1: mixture at the other end. You'd be using the mixture at the other end, which has implications on the burners. So you can imagine if you have a gas stovetop or gas range at your house, um, you would now be burning a mixture um, of, of what's the equivalent of primarily methane and, and hydrogen, um, and which has minor implications on how your burners work. But maybe even more critically, it has implications on like how a natural gas turbine would work, a power plant, because they'd be consuming basically the same mixture of gas. And they're really fine-tuned, actually. So you might need slightly different combustors that are in those engines um, to burn this mixture that is uh, doped essentially with a higher percentage of, of hydrogen. Um, but the reason why this gets interesting though, or part of the reason why I think there's something that we need to really consider and talk about here is because we have really large natural gas storage infrastructure in the United States. So, so we have the ability to store over 10% of annual natural gas consumption in the United States. That just dwarfs anything in the electricity sector when it comes to storage. Um, and so if we can get creative and figure out how to leverage the existing infrastructure that we have that's associated with natural gas in order to use it to distribute renewable, either hydrogen or renewable methane, now we might be on to something. Because the natural producing renewable natural gas or renewable hydrogen you know, in and of itself might be really expensive, and as I noted earlier, like, it's not as efficient for transportation sector. So this is not a silver bullet. This is not going to solve all of our problems. We can't just, like, fall asleep perfectly happy, you know. But at the same time, I feel like there might be something here that at least it needs to be part of the conversation because we are on track if we really are going to try to decarbonize to spend literally trillions and trillions of dollars. And so there's a question there of how do we leverage our existing assets in the most efficient way possible.
0: Yeah, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I think we hear a lot more conversation, at least in my circles, about the daily storage or the you know, overnight storage mm-hmm. problem than we do about these longer-term storage needs that might be associated with the kind of wind droughts that you mm-hmm. hypothesized earlier and uh, gives us something to do with all those excess renewables that are uh, going to be on the system um, in a higher penetration future. So... Can you give us a sense of the the so so if we have a few months worth of storage maybe a month month and a half of storage of gas that we use now in the system if we could sort of leverage that in some way that sounds like the same like enough storage to cover the kind of sort of down periods the seasons are not very not very frequent but mm-hmm. predictably uh, going to happen sorts of down periods that we we will expect to see in the, in a wind and solar future.
1: It's, it's, um, it's potentially possible from an initial whiteboard check on this it looks potentially really interesting as to how this could be leveraged to solve some of our energy storage problems. Now the flip side of it is also um, a question of like well should we just continue using um, natural gas that's collected conventionally and then use like carbon sequestration. If you scope the problem that we have to have, it has to be 100% You know, wind, water, solar, if that's your scoping of the problem then we're going to need a lot of storage um, and all that storage is going to be really expensive and how we um, acquire and purchase and maintain and operate all of that storage, that's where I get into a discussion of okay well can we maximize our pumped hydro storage? Can we maximize our, um, uh, put our electrochemical battery storage? do we need to get into this world where we're producing hydrogen from electrolysis? And
0: I guess part of why you're hedging is also that you know what, this particular technology is going to be competing against other technologies uh, in whatever institutional environment we have in the future yep. um, and whatever regulatory requirements are imposed upon that. So it's going to have to beat nuclear and pump storage hydro and carbon capture and storage or, or whatever it is. That's exactly right. Um, and so that brings me, you mentioned something that that uh, has always been curious to me, and that is we, we have a lot of already on the system one kind of storage, and that's pumped hydro. Yet we don't seem to be interested in building more. It's not like conventional hydro where all the good spots are taken. There's still spots where we could build pump storage hydro, but in most of those places, we seem to be very pessimistic about the ability to get the permission to do it, to finance it, um, which makes your the, the existing infrastructure that you talk about in connection with gas is all that much more attractive.
1: We do have a, a challenge of, of building infrastructure, I would say, in um, uh, in... The United States right now it's, it's hard for us sometimes to get that job done and now there are often very good reasons for why it's, it's challenging. Whether or not we can continue building out and expanding that infrastructure I think is will be an interesting one. Pumped hydro is clearly uh, an important part of our energy storage and it's also the equivalent of seasonal storage. Um, um, it even leverages nature's classic seasonal storage which is snowpack in the mountains um, and so it, it, it's actually really valuable in many ways, collecting it, you know, in the Sierra Nevada or the Rockies over the winter and then and we can use it equivalently in the summer. Um, that's, uh, that's really valuable um, to, to leverage that sort of parallel um, aspect of, of, our, of our weather. Now, how, if we're unable to build that infrastructure, then yeah I do, I do begin to look at can we be leveraging um, other um, dynamics of our grid or our, our weather patterns of you know, high peaks of, of solar in the summers and potentially peaks of wind in the winter in some parts of the country uh, and, and utilizing that in a way that produces seasonal storage and of course what I, haven't, what I haven't really brought home yet is the reason why you know, this is potentially of great interest is because you we're know, storing that electricity in the equivalent of a chemical bond Um, And we're doing it just like essentially what nature has done forever, which is it took solar power equivalent and put it into hydrocarbons and stored it for millennia and it stayed there. And so that's the general, like, well, I mean, we could store, you know, hydrocarbons for a really, really long time. And so that's um, the sort of equivalent process. It's just a very challenging question to figure out whether or not it is the most economical thing. From a technical standpoint, I'm confident it would work. Um, from an economic and policy standpoint that begins to actually get more challenging. My engineering mind can't necessarily yeah, run around yeah. it yet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you, you began with the energy inefficiency of all this and we're coming back to the energy. energy. Yeah, in, true. In, in, but, but it becomes economically, it may become economically efficient in a world where we are just going to have an intense need at, at certain points of time for energy that originally came from some sort of clean process. Um, Well, thanks very much for sitting down to talk with us, Todd. It was a pleasure. Great. Thanks.